Thank you, Elizabeth. And so we pray. Father God, we ask that in your grace and mercy you will enable us to open our hearts to be prepared to receive the seed of your word that we may abide in you and you in us. Amen. Now in my experience, to use the image of father when speaking about God can be problematic. And therefore, we have not one, but two elephants in the room today. And it's a good job we're in a large arena then. And let me introduce you to those two elephants. The first is the image of God as a father is not always helpful to those who've had a difficult or negative experience of their own father. And Charlie alluded to that earlier on. And I understand that. And the other is that God is genderless. In fact, some will refer to God as a mother too. And we've done that in the prayers this morning. So thank you for that, Tony. But every day is a great day to celebrate the love of God. And with today being Father's Day, I hope that we can celebrate the love of God as the ultimate father. Whilst acknowledging those two sensitivities that I mentioned earlier. And so we begin with the parable of the prodigal son. And Jesus sets the scene from the word go. There was a man and he had two sons. And the younger one wanted to go off and do his own thing. Or see the world, as we might say today. And I understand that. My mother grew up on the Isle of Man. In fact, she lives there again now. It's a small island in the Irish Sea. If you make your way up to Liverpool and turn left, in the middle of the Irish Sea is the Isle of Man. been celebrating the TT races recently. The Isle of Man is 32 miles long at its longest point and 14 miles wide at its widest because it's a really tiny place. And so maybe you can understand that at the age of 16, my mother wanted to leave this small island and explore what lay beyond. And she did. And she joined the, the Wrens or the Navy. But the thing is, if you want to do the world in style, you really need some hard cash. And my mother didn't have lots of money and neither did she have a father that she could tap into. But the youngest son in the parable did. And he set about squeezing the cash from his dad as soon as he could. Now, commentators tell us that the younger son may have been about 17 years of age. So he's still a kid in my eyes, I'm sorry. Because young men would normally be married around the age of 18 to 20. And the story implies that this younger son is unmarried. So I'm going to assume late teenage. And so the story unfolds as the younger son takes centre stage spending his money almost as quickly as he got it by squandering it on wild living. 
But I'm not someone who always likes to focus on the obvious. I'm always interested to have a look at what's happening on the periphery. And so what I want us to do this morning is to move our focus from centre stage, from this young son who's spending all his money here, there and everywhere, and ask, what of the father? What is he doing while the son is away? Some have suggested that this, rather than call this parable the parable of the prodigal son, it should actually be called the parable of the waiting father. And actually the clue as to what the father is doing during this time while his younger son is away is given in the latter part of verse 20. But while he, that is the younger son, was still a long way off, his father saw him. The grieving father is watching, waiting, no doubt praying every single day. And with that image in our minds of that father, let's just turn to Hosea for a moment. Does it make you feel uncomfortable to know that we can hurt God? Because if you love unconditionally as God does, doesn't that make you vulnerable? It's part of our human condition that we are intent on pushing the boundaries just to see how much we can get away with. And the more we get away with, the more we continue to push. That passage from Hosea is deeply moving. It oozes with emotion. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. They didn't realize it was I who healed them, leading them with the cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them. My people are determined to turn from me. They refuse to repent. But how can I give you up? How can I give you up? The child that God helped with their baby steps learned to walk and walked away from the father. And the one who loved Israel passionately, and it hurts, it hurts God. And so we come back to that prodigal son story. And so the father waits. And his waiting is not in vain. And when the younger son goes from hero to zero, hungry, poor, in the most degrading job a Jew could ever do, we arrive at that glorious phrase, he came to his senses. What a fool I've been. 
And no one tells the younger son to go home. He makes that decision and he acts on it of his own free will. So do we see echoes of the salvation story here? The misery of being lost, the joy of being found. And the son practiced his speech as he journeyed home. And when the opportunity came to say to his father, note he didn't have time to finish it. However, the son was able to get out those words, those important words that expressed his sense of sin and unworthiness. He was swept into his father's embrace. Welcome back, son. Look how lavish the father is in his affection. He had compassion, Luke tells us. He ran to him, very undignified in the culture of the day, but the father wasn't fussed with that. My son's coming, and I'm going to run to meet him. He embraced him. He kissed him. This is not courtesy. This is not politeness. This is a sincere greeting here. There's no dialogue And yet this son knows that he's loved and he's welcomed. We talk about actions speaking louder than words. But the father's action is not only a sign of forgiveness, but it's the sign of the restoration of a broken relationship with the initiative being taken by the father. And this is backed up by some practicalities. No time is wasted. Quick, quick, says the father. And instructions are given for the son to be dressed in the finest robe. And that affirms the son's reinstatement. He's given a ring, a symbol of authority. And finally, some shoes, which I learned shoes were the sign that a person was a free man and not a slave. That's quite a reception, because remember, the prodigal was prepared to be accepted as a hired man. And so all of this reception would have been completely unexpected. And then there's the feast, of course, and a big party takes place. Isn't it strange that no one sought to tell your elder son What was happening? In fact, it was only by summoning one of the slaves that he's able to find out for himself. Why is that? Is the elder son so diligent that he will not go indoors until his work for the day is complete? We can't be sure. We can merely guess. But what we do know is that once again, the father goes out to meet the elder son just as he had done with the younger son. Have you ever watched a film or a program when the ending wasn't what you were expecting? It's interesting that the parable of the prodigal son does not have a neat conclusion. And I don't know about you, but I I really like that. The elder son is outside. He is not amongst the welcome party. He doesn't want to be. 
I was reminded of the story about the Sunday school teacher who asked their class, who wasn't happy to see the prodigal son return? And one child immediately put their hand up and answered, well, the fattened calf, of course. <laughs> eh? And that may be so. But the elder son's not particularly impressed either. If we look at this, there is no trace of respect in his conversation with his father. The elder son can't even bring himself to speak of his brother. He talks of him, this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours. How does the father respond? He addresses the elder son affectionately and gently reminds him, this brother of yours. It is not the father's wish that the elder son be left out either. And we continue to eavesdrop on a conversation which ends with the father's invitation to the elder son to join the celebrations. And the father concludes, everything I have is yours. And it's as if the camera pans out with the father and son centre stage, and we're all left wondering if the elder son ever joined the party or not. The other title that's been suggested for this parable is the parable of the lost sons, plural. Suggesting perhaps that the relationship between the elder and the son, elder son and the father was not what it should have been. And we need to be very careful reading this parable of Jesus in a 21st century London. Because our tendency is to see ourselves in the prodigal, experiencing the welcoming love of God, and we see ourselves much removed from the elder son. And consequently, we run the risk of becoming very self-righteous indeed and point an accusing finger at the elder son who just doesn't seem to get it. But let me tell you, beware. Because if you have ever felt you are not appreciated as you think you should be, if you think that people don't give you the credit that you think you deserve, if you think that God is overlooking you, you are in this final scene. You are there. You are the elder son having this conversation with the father who perhaps says, I'm not sure I really want to be involved anymore. And so it's not helpful to point an accusing finger. What is more appropriate is that you re-examine yourself in the light of God's unconditional love and have that angry conversation with God. Have it, as the elder son did. God's big enough to take it. He can stand up for himself. But don't leave it there. Let God work with you through it because he can and because he cares, and because he loves you. You know, folks don't get left outside 
There's a party going on and you're invited. But Kenya might say, it's only a story, is it? Jesus used story. It's a great teaching method to help our tiny, finite minds get some grasp of the awesomeness of God and his love for us. And it's not just for the sake of knowledge, but to prompt our own hearts to respond to the love of God. What is portrayed in this parable is the love of God to his wayward children, a theme in the Old Testament and perceived in that reading from Hosea. And so the parable, whatever title we choose to give it, illustrates the pardoning love of God who welcomes and restores the outcast. Essentially, the central figure is the father. The central figure in the parable of the, of the prodigal son is the father. And the essence of the story is much more than repentance. It's about being restored to the family. And the father takes the initiative to restore both of his sons. Note that, to restore both of his sons. And note the tenderness with which he treats both of them. We may like to pick sides. God doesn't. The Father does not pick sides. There is no preference. The Father loves both sons equally. And so the story teaches us the misery in being lost and God's joy in restoring us. I want to close with a short story, if I may, from my very, very favorite theologian, Adrian Plass. Um, he tells the most amazing stories and I thought summed it up so much better than me. This is what he says. I met a modern prodigal in Australia once, a man who ran away from home when he was 14, didn't return until he was nearly 20. And he planned to drive home in style to surprise his dad. But on the way, his car broke down. He had to ring his parents for help. And the stylish return lost some of its dignity as the young man was towed home in a lifeless vehicle by his beaming father. Lots of people break down on their way to God. But don't worry if it happens to you, because he'll come and get you. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. We have hurt you. But we thank you for loving us so much. And we still break down from time to time. So please rescue us when it happens and hold us in your embrace. Forgive us and let us be close again. Amen.